Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 64, Revelation, A Throne in Heaven. And what I would like to do in this episode is to again begin our discussion in Revelation chapter 4. This time I plan to read the entire chapter, which is only 11 verses in length. And I hope to, by the way I read this chapter, draw your attention to the fact that there are 14 references to thrones or to a throne in Revelation 4, 1 to 11. And so that really is the thrust of this entire chapter. And I hope to explain to you a little bit about why I think that's the case, as well as drawing your attention to the fact that John once again here is hearing a voice speaking to him like a trumpet. And I hope to draw your attention back to many of the themes that trumpets signified for the people of God in the Old Testament. Many of those same themes are being hearkened back to even here in Revelation 4, and then we will see just why the church on earth so desperately needs this vision of who really is on the throne. So let's just jump right into it. To begin this week's episode, I'm just going to read Revelation chapter 4 in its entirety, and here's what we're told. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." Now, I'm not sure how any of you can read or hear a chapter like that read and not just get incredibly excited. This is absolutely beautiful. And aside from the fact that one of my main points in this podcast is simply to teach you things and teach you accurate ways of approaching your Bibles and reading them correctly, I am not going to pretend that a big point of this podcast is not also to call those of you who are listening into worship. 
because that is exactly what Revelation chapter 4 is inviting any of its readers into. We know from chapter 1 in Revelation that this book was meant to be circulated among the seven churches and it was to be heard and those who heard the words were to receive a blessing as well as those who read them. And I do think that these um, chapters that make up our book of Revelation were oftentimes read in church gatherings. And you know and I know that those who gather in churches do so in order to worship the Lord. And I do think that simply reading these words is one incredibly amazing way to enter into true worship. And we will get to the specific breakdown in um, subsequent episodes. Um, I don't have enough time in 30 minutes to tackle everything that I just read to you. Um, But I had spoken with a few of you after last week's episode where I focused primarily on verse 1 of Revelation 4, and I felt the burden to introduce a discussion regarding time. And if you remember from that episode, episode 63, my main point in that episode was to caution us against hearing the word heaven and hearing the words after this or after these things and automatically thrusting the contents of what we are reading here in Revelation 4 and then Revelation 5, 6, 7, and so on as being primarily something that hasn't yet happened or is something that is going to happen in the future. And the reason why I wanted to caution you against this is because of the way I was raised, Um, not raised by my parents, raised by my church, and many of the views that were commonly held to, which are affectionately known as a dispensationalist view, but is a particular view and in its understanding of the end times, which I won't go into at length here, but is one that very much um, believes that so much of Revelation is futuristic and that there is going to be a period of time where the church and the Christians in the church are no longer around when the events described in the book of Revelation take place. And so my, my reason for spending so much time last week in the episode, in the podcast, talking about time was that I want to caution us and introduce the idea that heaven and earth are not temporal realities, meaning you're on earth now and one day you're going to be in heaven. So it's like a linear scale. And when you move further down the line, you get closer to heaven. It's not viewed like that in the Bible. And it's certainly not viewed that way in the book of Revelation, but rather heaven and earth are two spheres, two realms of reality. And you can choose to live out of either one of those realities while you live your life down here on earth. And much of Paul's language in the New Testament, in his epistles, are focused on saying, you have an identity, you have a reality, you have a citizenship in the heavenly places that you are encouraged to live out of while you are living on the earth. And so the earth sometimes is spoken of as the domain of the old age, the things that are passing away, but the new age, the new creation, the heavenly creation that Jesus has created has given us a place and a space to live out of now. And that's what I believe John is explaining to us in Revelation chapter 4. Again, I have grown up and have since dispensed with this particular um, idea of, of the future of Revelation and these kinds of ideas, but I don't want you to mistake the idea that I think everything in Revelation is in the present. 
there are clear references in chapter 7, at the end of chapter 11, at the end of chapter 14, at the end of chapter 20, clearly in chapters 21 and 22. There are multiple references made at multiple times that are very much things that we will not see or experience until the end. But Revelation is not primarily a linear book, meaning just because chapter 4 comes after chapters 1, 2, and 3 does not mean that the events described in chapter 4 come after the events described in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Revelation is much more cyclical, if I can use that phrase, and I will devote an entire episode and come in the coming weeks to explaining to you exactly what I mean by that. But Revelation repeats itself a lot from different perspectives with increasing intensity as the book goes on. And if you and I read Revelation expecting simple answers to simple questions, we will get crazy images that make no sense to us at all. But if we take what we hear from Revelation as Revelation unfolds and we allow the images and the metaphors to build on themselves and to increase in intensity, we will see answers to questions we weren't even asking and it will help explain the rest of the book as we go. So all I'm asking you to do is to listen in with me as we explain this because I think Revelation is brilliantly constructed and I think it would absolutely revolutionize the church if we read it the way it was intended to be read. So again, I grew up hearing that chapters 1, 2, and 3 in Revelation are for the church, but that from chapter 4 onward, the events being described affect some future tribulation period from which the church will no longer be present. The church, these interpreters suggest, will be raptured from the earth and will not be around when the events that are about to be described take place. Now, after studying the book of Revelation for a number of years and after wrestling through many of the concepts that you have heard me share on this episode, from episode one all the way to the present, I no longer hold on to this position I don't think that this makes very good sense of the biblical narrative, and I don't think it makes very good sense of the book of Revelation. It will become increasingly clearer as we go as to why I don't think that this is the case, but I did explain one reason in the last week's episode, and it centers on the way that I think John intends us to understand words like after, as well as how the Bible speaks when it refers to heaven. But John MacArthur, for example, who is a popular pastor and commentator, draws the conclusion that this rapture takes place between chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Revelation, and the answer he gives as to why he thinks that is the case is actually rather strange. And I, I don't overly want to pick on John MacArthur. I disagree with him on quite a few points of, of doctrine. Um, in recent weeks, I've begun to be quite saddened and quite disappointed by the way that he is handling particular issues of doctrine in an incredibly, what appears to be a very arrogant way. That's not my reason for disagreeing with John MacArthur on this point. This is just one view that was very highly held to in the churches that I grew up in. 
And so I, I wanted to share with you his strange reason that I read. And this, this comes right from his commentary. Um, his reason for why he believes the church is no longer present in the events being described from Revelation 4 onward is that the word church is no longer used in the book of Revelation. Now, personally, for someone of John MacArthur's capabilities, um, this is incredibly sad and incredibly disappointing. Um, It's actually a confusing conclusion, if I can just say that myself. Even in the first few chapters, Revelation already employs other metaphors to describe Christians. (laughs) For example, lampstands. Furthermore, even Paul uses the word saints much more often than church, and saints is used all throughout the book of Revelation. One of the strengths of Revelation is its use of metaphors, particularly when it mixes metaphors together, and Revelation utilizes the mixing of metaphors non-stop in this book. So, so aside from there simply being no indication in Revelation itself that anything like a rapture takes place between chapters 3 and 4, it would also leave the church without much of what it needs most in order to actually maintain its faithful witness as lampstands. What the church needs, particularly after its exhortations by the Son of Man in chapters 2 and 3, what the church needs is a vision of heaven to remind them, to remind us who truly is on the throne. And wouldn't you know it, that's exactly what Revelation 4 gives us. So let me read parts of the first verse and let's, let's have a discussion about what's going on here. In verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place After this, now I have referenced this in previous episodes, but I've decided again to repeat myself here because what I'm about to share is very important for you to grasp. But throughout the Old Testament, whenever someone heard a trumpet blast, and here again, John is hearing a voice which we know from chapter one as being the voice of the Son of Man himself, but this voice isn't just like a human talking. It is a voice that sounds like a trumpet. And in the Old Testament, whenever you heard a trumpet or a shofar, the ram's horn, the ram horns trumpet, it, the signal, um, the signal, the trumpet blast signaled rather the Lord's descent to meet Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. It was later associated with the Lord's entering his temple from Psalm 47, trumpets called troops to battle and the congregation to worship from the book of Numbers. And then the sound of the shofar on the day of atonement every 50th year signaled the liberation of God's people and land from Leviticus chapter 25. So John hearing this voice again now in heaven indicates that many of these same themes may be in view in chapter 4, and of course, chapter 5 continues the view of this um, vision of heaven. But the Lord coming to meet with his people, the Lord entering his temple, a call for God's people to battle. Now, just what battle means, we don't yet know, but we will. 
It is a call for God's people to gather for worship and a recognition of what truly liberates people in this world. And so the voice that John hears from the fact that it sounds like a trumpet brings with it all of these themes, particularly the Lord entering his temple. And as we will see in future episodes, much of the description given to us in Revelation 4 mirrors tabernacle and temple descriptions from Exodus, Leviticus, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. And then hearing a voice like a trumpet also draws our attention to the Lord calling troops to battle and the congregation to worship. Again, we'll look at both of these themes as well in future episodes, and I want you to keep them fresh in your mind, primarily the three of the Lord entering his temple, the Lord calling troops to battle, and the Lord calling his congregation of faithful followers to worship. In getting to the heart of the beauty and the intricacy and the development of the themes of chapter 4, I would like to read a few quotes for you from two books that I have referenced several times already in this Revelation series. Um, These two resources, in my opinion, are among the best ones out there, and I just cannot say as clearly or succinctly what these two men have already put in print. And so the first quote I'd like to share with you is from Richard Bauckham from his book, The Theology of the Book of Revelation. Um, As I've shared before, probably the most densely packed, theologically rich, 160-page book on the thinking and the theology and the themes and the interplay going on in the book of Revelation that you will ever find anywhere. And if you have $30 to buy this little paperback, I could not recommend it highly enough. But as I've said before, if you don't want to buy the book, just listen to this podcast because I will be referencing pretty much everything he says in the book by the time we're done. So anyway, without blabbering on any longer, here's what Bauckham says about uh, about our verses from Revelation 4. Quote, The throne itself on which God sits in heaven is mentioned very frequently. It is one of the central symbols of the whole book. After the vision of the risen Christ with his people on earth, 1, 9 through chapter 3, verse 22, John is taken up into heaven. This gives the whole prophecy two starting points. The situation of the seven churches as perceived and addressed in Christ's messages to them and the vision of God's sovereignty in heaven. In chapter 4, God's sovereignty is seen as it is already fully acknowledged in heaven. This establishes it as the true reality which must in the end also prevail on earth. Heaven is the sphere of ultimate reality. What is true in heaven must become true on earth. Thus John is taken up into heaven to see that God's throne is the ultimate reality behind all earthly appearances. Having seen God's sovereignty in heaven he can then see how it must come to be acknowledged on earth, end quote. And this is incredible. God's throne is the ultimate reality behind all earthly appearances. And you see, it is this reality then that the churches need to maintain their faithful witness in an environment that is increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. What the churches need more than anything is to know 
without a doubt that God is the one on the throne, particularly at a time where many of these churches are not experiencing what they think they should be if that really were the case. And we've walked through each of these different churches in Asia Minor. The Philadelphian believers are being oppressed. The Christians in Thyatira are caving to the pressures of the culture. Those in Pergamum have mixed just enough Roman life into their church life to keep from receiving persecution. The Ephesians, on the other hand, are so determined to keep their doctrine pure that they've forgotten what pure doctrine is actually for to enable them to live as Jesus did and to love as Jesus did as well. The believers in Smyrna have virtually nothing and are literally losing their lives at the hands of the Romans. The Christians in Sardis are nearly dead, though they view themselves as alive and healthy. And the Laodiceans are so well off that they no longer think they even need Jesus. Now, you and I could look at this church, could look at all these churches, could look at the modern-day church and see it as weak, poor, small, unloving, overlooked, compromised, self-assured, and self-sufficient and wonder what on earth it's going to take to turn them around. And you could look at the church, see it in all of these ways, and wonder who really is on the throne, who really is ruling things on the earth. But Revelation 4 assures us that God is on the throne and that he has everything in complete control and that he is aware of each church's struggles. Jesus told them that he was aware by addressing all seven churches with the words, I know. I know your poverty. I know your tribulation. I know your works. You say you're alive, but you're dead. And on and on and on. And then as Bauckham says, God's sovereignty is seen as it is already fully acknowledged in heaven. This establishes it as the true reality, which must in the end also prevail on earth. And so a big portion of John's vision is going to be what is ultimate reality really like? What does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it sound like? And what would it look like to live out of that heavenly reality while on the earth. Who really is on the throne? That's one of the key questions. And Gregory Stevenson in his book, The Slaughtered Lamb, is, um, addresses this with brilliance. And this is uh, the second quote that I want to bring to you as well. Um, Gregory Stevenson, much cheaper in terms of cost for a book, and it is equally great in my mind. He addresses so much about suffering in the world, and sometimes the way we believe it is quite senseless and yet reshapes that discussion and reframes it around the beauty of just who Jesus Christ is and how he rules from the throne as a suffering lamb. And um, hence the title of his book, The Slaughtered Lamb. But here's what Stevenson says, quote, John's audience lived in a world where the sovereignty of God and his role as the ultimate benefactor did not go unchallenged. Revelation 13 contains a vision of a beast rising out of the sea, an image that represents the Roman emperor and Roman power. On one level, this vision describes the world that John and his readers inhabit. The beast lays claim to power, a throne, and great authority, 
each of which was granted to it by the dragon, or Satan. Furthermore, the beast receives the worship of the whole world, a clear reference to the imperial cult, the worship of the Roman emperor. In short, the world as experienced by John's readers is a place where Rome is sovereign, where Rome lays claim to all power, authority, and divine glory. In the world as envisioned in Revelation 13, the Roman emperor is the one who sits on the throne and exercises sovereignty over the earth. Therefore, both God and Rome lay claim to a throne, to power, to authority, and to the right of worship. The stage is set for a turf war. One of the driving theological questions in the book of Revelation is this, who rules in this world? Is this world under the authority of God or under the authority of the dragon and his beasts? Given that both God and the dragon and beasts assert their right to rule over this world, it is not surprising that one of the dominant structural metaphors in the book of Revelation is war. End quote. Stevenson is absolutely brilliant here and has tapped into, I think, the brilliance of the book of Revelation. Allow me just to jump way ahead, but for clarification purposes, wrap this podcast episode up by just reading for you the first seven verses of Revelation 13. Keep in the back of your mind some of the things I've just read from Revelation 4, which is a vision of God on the throne, which again, we will get to in subsequent episodes. But listen to the way Revelation 13 describes the beast and his claim to power. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. I went ahead in that section and read all the way through verse 8, but that's how Revelation 13 opens. And I'm not going to take the time right now to dissect each of this um, for you. We'll get to this in, in future months as, at, at the rate we're going, but that's okay. What I want to draw your attention to is how much power and thrones and authorities are granted to the beast. Roman imperial rule as exercised through the emperor and through the emperors leading the nation 
into its ideas of what will bring about prosperity and peace for the people living there. What we are dealing with, in Stevenson's words, is a turf war. We have two different ideas of what it means to rule well, and we have two different ideas of who really is on the throne. One of them has staked his claim as an earthly ruler. The other has staked his claim as a heavenly one. This is again why it does us no good as Christians to envision a time in the future when God will rule over the earth. That does very little for us in faithfully witnessing to his glory and his goodness in the present. We need a picture of reality in the present that will help us to overcome or to conquer in the face of oppressive um, regimes, temptations to backsliding, temptations to cave in the face of persecution, um, you know, failure to love one another faithfully as the Ephesian Christians were dealing with. But in verse 7 of Revelation 13, we are told that this beast is allowed to make war on the saints. Interesting. Once again, here's our word, the word that Paul uses most regularly to refer to Christians. He calls them saints in almost every one of the opening three verses of one, every one of his letters. But here we're told that the beast is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now this will prove to be one of the heightened points of the book of Revelation. But if you remember each of the letters to the seven churches... Each one of the churches is exhorted to conquer as their lampstand faithful witness. And here the beast is told that he has authority to conquer the saints. A major wordplay is going on in the book of Revelation regarding what it means not only to rule well, but what it ultimately means to conquer and I'll let you in on a little spoiler. Depending upon who is on the throne in your mind will define for you what it means to conquer. If your God is on the throne in heaven and that reality is shaping your identity, Revelation chapter 5 will answer for us all what it actually means to conquer. If the one on the throne is the one who can grant you worldly power and worldly prestige and wisdom and influence, and you see no problem bowing the knee to the Roman emperor or to worldly empires or to the kingdoms of this world, the definition you will embrace of what it means to conquer will be something very, very different. So these visions that John is receiving are central in the life of the church because they shape for us and they define for us the reality that we are actually grasping for. Because interestingly enough, throughout chapter 2 and 3 in Revelation, we're told seven times for the church to conquer, but nowhere in those two chapters are we told what conquering means. We will get the answer to that question in Revelation chapter 5. But since we're not yet there, I'll hold that off for the time being. But again, I'm glad you're tracking with me. I want Revelation to tell its own story.
to pick up the themes in the order in which it does and for us to recognize that the themes and the structures of entering into the temple and calling the congregation to worship and calling the congregation to battle, all of these themes get reframed and redefined and reinterpreted in and through the person of Jesus Christ, which is why this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the gospel, in the person of Jesus, reality as we know it gets absolutely transformed. And John is writing a letter to be circulated to seven churches that we get to participate in and take part in now, not so that we can be informed, but so that we can be transformed right along with John and with the followers in Asia Minor in the first century who wanted to be faithful witnesses as lampstands to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb who was reigning there with him. That's the thrust of this book. And the vision that John is about to receive in Revelation 4 and share with us will help reshape the way we think about the circumstances that we see on earth. And it will reshape the way we think about ourselves and what we are called to do and who we are called to be and what we think that will actually look like when we are doing it well. I want you to hold on because these themes will shape your life in a powerful, powerful way. And so that is all the time that we're going to take for this week's episode. Again, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for leaving me ratings or reviews on whatever uh, podcast app you choose to listen to these on. I do, again, appreciate those of you who have supported me not only with your kind words and thoughts, but also with your um, money and have given me the chance to go out and purchase resources and microphones and things to keep this podcast going. Thankful for your support. Thankful for your friendship. Many of you I know in person, some of you I've never met, would love to someday. If you want to find me on Facebook or reach out on Instagram, we'd love to connect in that way. Until next time. Have a great week.